Hey, welcome to the Africa Podcast. Today's episode features a special conversation between me, Mikey Mahenna, Associate Curator Sarah Graff at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and esteemed professor at the Columbia University, Zainab Bahrani. The conversation talks about Zainab's work, the many books that she's published, and what she's working on right now. Hope you enjoy it. This was originally recorded on October 8th. Welcome, everybody. My name is Mikey Mahenna. Um, thanks so much for joining us. Um, this is a really special edition of Africa Conversations um, for two reasons. One, because I'm joined by my co-host, Sarah Graf, who is calling in from New York, and because we have the incomparable Zainab Bahrani, who is going to be joining us. I'd like to introduce my co-host, Sarah Graf, who is an associate curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City in the Department of Ancient Near Eastern Art in 2006. Sarah was a Hagop Kevorkian Curatorial Fellow. She earned her PhD from New York University's Institute of Fine Arts in 2012 um, with a dissertation on Mesopotamian, on the Mesopotamian Dima Humbaba. Um, Sarah, I'm going to ask you and Zainab to unmute yourself and I'll pass it over to Sarah to introduce Zainab. Thank you so much, Mikey. And um... It is such a great privilege to be talking to Zainab today. Um, I, I'm going to read you a list of her extensive, extensive accomplishments um, and embarrass her. But I also have to say, just speaking as myself, that she's my mentor and she's the one who made sure that I wrote that dissertation on Humbaba. And um, she has been my touchstone in so many things. Um, so it, it is a true privilege to get to talk to her. Zainab Bahrani is the Edith Parada Professor of Art History and Archaeology at Columbia University in New York. And she is a specialist in the art and archaeology of ancient Mesopotamia and the Eastern Mediterranean. She's the author of numerous books, including Women of Babylon, Gender and Representation in Mesopotamia, which was published in 2001, The Graven Image, Representation in Babylonia and Assyria in 2003, Rituals of War, the Body and Violence in Mesopotamia, published in 2008, which won the American Historical Association's James Henry Breasted Prize. Her most recent book, The Infinite Image, Art, Time, and the Aesthetic Dimension in Antiquity, is based on her 2010-2011 Slade Lectures in the Fine Arts at the University of Oxford, and it was the winner of the Lionel Trilling Prize in 2015. She's also been the recipient of numerous fellowships and awards for her research, including a 2003 Guggenheim and awards from the Getty Foundation, the Mellon Foundation, and the Kevorkian Foundation. She has been a curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in my department um, before I was a curator there, at paving the way as she has done in so many things, um, and has conducted archaeological fieldwork in Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. And she's currently the director of a Columbia University field project, Mapping Mesopotamian Monuments. So I hope we'll get the chance to dig into some of those really rich topics in our conversation. And I'll turn it over to Mikey to ask the first question. Thanks, Sarah. Um, Zainab, first of all, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, well, first of all, thank you. And thank you for that amazing introduction, uh, Sarah. It's, it's always a pleasure to see you and to chat with you. I mean, really a pleasure because I always enjoy our conversation so much. Um, Zainab, I have a question for you. Yes. So um, you grew up in Iraq. Um, yeah. 
But most people who grew up in Iraq are not necessarily drawn into studying the history of Mesopotamia and the history of its monuments. How quickly in your life, uh, how early on in your life did you become sort of attracted to this study? What drew you into this work? Um, well, that's actually a very easy question to answer for me because I was drawn to it at a very, very young age because I was fortunate in, uh, enough to be born into a family um, where my mother and my aunts especially were fascinated by the ancient sites and they would take us as children to the Iraq Museum and to uh, sites like uh, Babylon or Hatra. And I still remember vividly, as if it were yesterday, the first time I saw Babylon. I must have been five or maybe six years old, probably more like five. And I was just astounded by this place, uh, the dragons and uh, the, the bulls and just the way that they emerged out of the brickwork there. And I kept asking questions to all the adults. Uh, what is this place? How did it get here? Who made it? And the way that I see it is that I just never stopped asking those questions. This is sort of part of the, the value of taking your kids to museums and to archaeological yes. sites. Um, but, you know, Zainab, you mentioned that it was your mother and your aunts, and I had the privilege to know at least one of your aunties, sort of Lamial Gailani. Um, and I'm wondering to what extent it was women who shaped that investigation and, and what I feel like that is a topic that doesn't get discussed enough, the important role of Iraqi women in um, shaping relations with cultural heritage. Absolutely. I mean, it was certainly something that was uh, driven or guided by the women um, that I was that I had the great privilege of growing up amongst. And I'm, I mean, I'm very aware of that privilege and uh, good fortune that I had. And uh, yes, I mean, in in front of me were women like uh, Dr. Lamia El Gailani, who was a, an auntie to me, and uh, the Iraqi archaeologist, Dr. Selma Al Radhi, who has now uh, passed away, and who um, coincidentally lived in Beirut for a while. Uh, for those of you who were in Beirut, some of you may even know who she is. Um, so they paved the path because it was wonderful to be able to see when I was a young girl that this was a possibility, that women could become archaeologists, that this was not a, a world that, that was closed to someone like me. In fact, it was never a point of discussion because in my family, it was always taken for granted that, yes, of course, of course, a girl could uh, go on uh, to graduate school. And of course, a girl could become an archaeologist. So this was never a point of discussion because others had paved the path. And I'm so grateful to them. So um, Zainab, so my role in this interview is largely to be the dumb one. And so I'm going to ask questions that maybe um, folks who have never studied archaeology might want to ask. So I'm going to ask a really basic question. Why is it valuable, um, if you were explaining to a 15 year old, why is it valuable to understand uh, monuments, to study them, to protect them? Um, why do people care? Why should we care um, 
about this sort of this practice to begin with? What can it tell about ourselves, our society today, our priorities, the priorities of our ancestors? Why should we care about this stuff? Well, I mean, for me, the caring for the past, if we just live in the present and know nothing about the past, then um, of course, we'll make horrendous mistakes. But yeah. the past is also about who we are. It has to do uh, with our sense of place um, and belonging in the world. I, you'll notice that I'm avoiding the word identity and I'm doing Correct. so on purpose because I'm very much against kind of ethno-nationalist identity and relationships to antiquities in that way. I don't um, personally participate um, in that uh, direction. But I think for all of us, um, monuments and uh, architectural uh, history, architectural heritage uh, gives us a sense of space, a, a sense of a location. And uh, we can include in that the historical landscape in general. Um, so how do we sit, situate ourselves within our world and where we fit within that world? I think that um, architectural heritage and monuments uh, certainly give us uh, that sense of place. Um, so I think that it's very important to care for those uh, things and to conserve them uh, where possible. I also think that people do become tied to these uh, especially, for example, historical architecture, people's sense of self um, very often becomes tied with it. And you can see how it can be easily um, on, the, on the reverse or conversely be used as a way of wiping out um, yeah. the memory of people. So that's why we have to care building on that a little bit further. Um, so I feel like we've already started to touch on this, but you preserve in your, your intellectual lineage, this history of women being in the forefront of the intellectual life of Iraq, for instance, which is an important piece of history, is an important piece of, of the past that, as you say, you know, there are forces working to actively erase this, to fit this into a, a narrative of repression or of um, gender oppression that is not actually borne out by the evidence. And I feel like your work with um, massing, mapping Mesopotamian monuments, which we'll get to in the, certainly in the talk, is likewise an attempt to preserve this complexity and to um, counteract these stories. And I'm, I'm wondering, because it seems like these narratives are very powerful. These narratives of kind of oppression and um, cultural impoverishment are really are really powerful. And I'm wondering what you think about the role of storytelling for someone who is primarily an academic, um, but you do engage in storytelling as well. Well, I mean, and I think that's such a great question. Thank you, Sarah. Um, and the role of storytelling, I think that I'm becoming more and more kind of attracted to that direction as I get older. Mm -hmm. I think when I was younger, I felt very strongly that the academic work had to prove that I knew my material, that I you know, had a control of the um, kind of scientific data and was doing it according to a correct methodology. Um, but as I get older, I uh, allow myself uh, more 
um, the, the form of telling it as a story. And I do think that that can help. Uh, but everything comes in its own time. And I don't uh, feel that what I do today can be the same as what I did 20 or 25 years ago. Um, everything is in its own time. But uh, you're quite right about um, women of Babylon because uh, what's happened with, with the kind of narrative, the academic narrative about the role of women in uh, the ancient Near East or in Near Eastern antiquity is that the, it's been presented as a kind of um, a devolution of uh, from uh, more free to more and more oppressed, and then you know reaching Islam when be women become um, allegedly very oppressed. So there is this story that's been told that I was arguing against and saying that it's not just a matter of uh, finding the positivist data from the past and compiling it in a catalog and showing it to the world, but it's really um, questioning the way uh, that history has been told, where uh, aspects are cherry picked to narrate a, a kind of a, a single line um, that of uh, not evolution, but devolution, if we can uh, use that term. So there have been a lot of Orientalist stereotypes um, that have been used uh, in explaining the material from uh, the ancient Near East. Um, for example, if there is a particular word that's difficult to read, um, the Assyriologist may read it as a veil, whereas I would look at it and say, I don't really see where the word veil comes in here. And are you working with, with a kind of a stereotype of expecting something like that in this sentence? So I wanted to show um, how uh, the writing of history is always influenced by our own time and by our own preconceptions um, in, in the places and uh, periods in which we work, and also to try to tell the story of ancient Near Eastern women in, in a more positive uh, light. Um, Zainab, you know, it's, it's funny, Sarah and I were talking about your work uh, briefly, and I was, and I think I mentioned this on the call when I had with you, which is that you have this huge body of work that, that, um, that sort of spread over decades. And I'm always curious, if if you were if you were rewriting this book, for example, Women of Babylon now, how would it be different? How would you have, you know, advised your former self on what to look at differently um, at the time or given, you know, given if you had this 20 more years of information available to you? Um, what do you think you got kind of wrong? What new and uh, or not so right? And um what do you think, uh, how would you have changed this book uh, if you were to approach it now? Right. Um, well, I mean, I think that, of course, there's always new material that emerges um, in the archaeological field and uh, new scientific information that I certainly would add if I, if I had it to do over again. Um, but looking, I mean, in fact, I recently used it for teaching just this year with my graduate students. And it was funny rereading it because now it's 20 years later and yeah. it's almost like reading the, a book by a different person. So that was actually quite amusing. What I would say it, to my younger self is um, 
be brave a little bit more brave about mm. uh the the critiques that you the, the sort of critiques of orientalism that i raised i would tell myself to be even more brave about foregrounding those because at the time that i brought them up 20 years ago um this was not a popular way to work. And nowadays, everybody's speaking about racial justice and decolonizing the museum and so on. And this is in fact what I was trying to do with those publications. Um, but I was really doing that on my own and, and getting very little support. So I would tell my younger self, be, you know, be braver about this um, because things will change. People will catch up. Yes, things will change. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, you know, you bring to mind, Zainab, um, a very famous quote from Toni Morrison, where she talks about how the real function of racism is distraction. And that, you know, racism forces you, and here she's speaking in her particular you as an African American woman, yes. to prove that your people had history, to prove that you know, your anatomy is not defective to prove that your people had art and you develop all these disciplines to argue against this. And she said, there will always be another question. Um, do your own work. Don't be distracted. Exactly. I just, you know, that is the advice that you're giving yourself in 2001. Yes, don't be distracted. People will always try to tell you, no, you know, that's not what everybody else is doing. This is not the direction to go. Um, there are always a lot of naysayers, um, but you have to, I think you have to follow what you think is the right path. And that speaks to what you were saying about how you were very insistent on doing things, you know, in the correct way with the correct methodology, because you were already pushing so hard against these established kind of barriers that to do them in a way that you are now able to do with with more of an insistence on narrative or on storytelling was impossible so in a way like you could write this book twice but you couldn't write this book again without having written it 20 years ago i see what you're saying because i i think it's true that everything is has to come in its own time and uh as my students all know i'm really um pedantic i'm a stickler for, i'm a perfectionist i'm a stickler <laughs> for detail i will go after them if even you know one footnote is missing one small detail because i think that if we're going to make these sorts of critiques of orientalism and so on that then our scholarship has to be so airtight it has to be so um the the armor has to be strong because there are always people who are going to try to tear it down any way they can. So I think that for myself, and I've, I've tried to pass down this habit to my students, um, as Sarah knows, um, that we have to do this. We have, we have to be really solid academically um, in order to make these sorts of criticisms. But can I ask you also to tell a story? Because um, I think, you know, of course, you're absolutely right. One must be rigorous in scholarship. Otherwise, everything that you're building your work on is not solid. But I think in some cases, it's also a case of being able to see what has been visible forever, but that no one has bothered to see it before. So 
I'm asking you if you're if you're comfortable telling the story to tell the the your encounter with this nude female uh, statue creating <laughs> the reign of the Assyrian king Ashurbelkala that we have on the screen and the thing that you saw that no one had seen. Well, yes, okay. This is a kind of a funny and strange story. So uh, in my earlier work, I started uh, studying the representation of the female nude and um, thinking about how ancient cultures represented uh, the nude female body, uh, whether in ancient Greece or um, Rome or uh, the Near Eastern world. And I studied them systematically for some time. Um, and this particular statue in the British Museum, it's from the 11th century BC. Um, it's, I was always kind of intrigued by it because it looked to me as if it was uh, kind of roughly modeled, or at least this is uh, how it survived uh, through the centuries. Um, but it has an inscription on the back. And I just thought, well, having looked at all of the other representations of female nudes, one thing that really struck me as a, as a graduate student, as a young woman, is that in ancient Near Eastern representations of the female body, the pubic triangle is always represented very carefully. It's never kind of skimmed over or avoided. Whereas in classical Greek art, of course, we don't see it. It's uh, skimmed over and, and avoided. So I became intrigued by the question of why um, these representational choices were made. And I thought, well, why doesn't this statue, this kind of blows my theory, this statue, because I couldn't see that the pubic triangle was represented at all until finally one day I went to the British Museum and uh, looked at it close up. And as I was looking carefully, I realized that there were these finely carved curls of hair um, in little snail curls carved all across the area of the pubic triangle. And it felt like such a victory to find, I thought, yes. And the guard in the gallery, I think, thought I was completely out of my mind uh, because I started taking photographs of this <laughs> detail. And But I was so delighted because, of course, it proved my theory was correct. And then I wrote about it in this article um, in, in the mid-1990s called The Hellenization of Ishtar, which was a comparison between representations of Ishtar and Aphrodite, um, basically. Um, but I think one thing that uh, I would like to stress, because I don't want people to get the wrong impression about this, is I in that article and in my work in Women of Babylon, I never wanted to say that somehow Greek classical art was inferior or that it was not as realistic as the Near Eastern examples. What I was trying to argue is that each culture had its own way of constructing an ideal femininity in representation. Uh, neither of them are realistic. Both of them are ideals of uh, female beauty and femininity and each um, region or culture uh, 
represented a, a particular idealized form. Um, so this is what I was trying to show, to contextualize them uh, like that. I, I just want to add that in a recent exhibition um, in the British Museum, speaking of decolonizing the museum, the last exhibition that they had in the British Museum um, a couple of years ago, Sarah will know better than I do, um, they described this statue as being very unattractive and maybe deliberately unattractive. And I, I seriously don't see that. I don't understand why they're saying that. And in fact, the inscription on the back says that it was made by the king Ashur Belkala. And he actually uses the plural form that he made these statues um, really. And the term that's used is for visual pleasure. I think that that's a very radical um, assessment. And again, it's sort of, I think I see this thread coming through in our conversation now of noticing things and taking seriously things that were always there to be apprehended, but were never taken seriously. Um, maybe the person who wrote the label found this to be an unattractive statue, but yeah it was made for pleasure. And if we take that seriously, then what does that mean um, in terms of the relational web spinning out from the statue to the, the people who were meant to see it and the people who made it? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, of course, people have different attitudes towards all sorts of works of art and any two people might may like or dislike a particular work of art, but, um, as a way of guiding viewership within a museum context, it's my belief that the curator bears a different kind of a responsibility. It's one thing if we're strolling through, through and chatting and a friend of mine might say, well, I don't really like that piece, but I think it's a, a museum curator has a different kind of a, a role or, or um, maybe a burden to bear. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what you think of that, Sarah, because you're working as a curator. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a huge responsibility to show when it's your voice that's being used. That's something that I take very seriously. And I think curators do well to take seriously that when you write a label, there's no author. So paradoxically, it becomes mm. more powerful because it is just sort of information that's here. Right. No one wrote it, it's given by God, you know? And I, I think that this is another thing that is interesting to explore when talking about ancient Near Eastern art. I mean, as, as you well know, there's this long history of erasing the hand of the maker when you were making, in particular, a divine image. Right. I think that we would do well to remind ourselves that we're not so different, that you know, as viewers, we also feel on some level comforted often by this sense that no one made this, it's just handed to us. And that the act of showing the making troubles that because it shows that this is constructed. Right, but, and, and, and museums are institutions that are quite powerful in um, establishing narratives of how people understand the past. So I think that's something to think about, um, but the idea of a work of art um, in antiquity just kind of being um, 
made on its own and being a presence in the world. I find that fascinating um, in, in its own context that for the ancients, a work of art was not just a representation of something in their environment, but it was as a living being, something as a living being. And it was a form of presence in the world. And I've always found that to be fascinating. Uh, Zainab, I'm curious, just for time purposes, um, I want to move on to talk about your project mapping Mesopotamia. Um, one of the things that I found most fascinating about this project as I was reading about it and learning about it was the, this idea, and correct me if I'm wrong or if you think I miss, uh, I'm misdescribing it, but this idea that there are politics associated with the destruction of monuments as well as the uh, preservation of monuments yeah. and their uh, political acts um, and understanding those acts, um, understanding how the, um, the monuments are part of our past, but they're an, uh, pre preserving them or destructing them um, is an opportunity to shape the future. And so um, these, are, these are important places to understand and the motives of those who are trying to preserve them and those, the motives of those who are trying to destroy them are also really important to understand. Is that something, first of all, am I, am I describing it correctly? Um, what You're describing it. And be, yes. You're describing it correctly, but what I would add is that this is such a great. complicated topic because, yeah. yes, I mean, we all know about the unfortunate recent cases of the, the really heartbreaking uh, recent cases of the destruction, and I don't even want to um, give them the credit of mentioning what they did. Um, so I don't even like to talk about it. So um, what I would say is that perhaps people are more aware of the dangers of iconoclasm, meaning the destruction of images. Um, people are aware of that today, uh, but I think what people don't often think of is how um, aspects of preservation and conservation can also become politicized, um, as in who has the right to decide uh, what institutional structures and authorities make those decisions, what are the materials used? What can be done? Um, of course, history is always a process that's um, both remembering and forgetting. There are always select, selective processes that take place, right? Um, and so we, we work on conservation and preservation of things like historical architecture and uh, monument um, monuments, but uh, we also have to remember that specific choices have to be made, that not everything is being preserved. In the previous slide that you showed, um, Amadiya, Amedi in Turkish, um, the, the rock relief, and you see the man um, walking down the stairway path. I want to point out that that stairway path dates to the Parthian period. That means around the time of Christ in the Roman era. It's a very ancient stairway path and people have been walking up and down that stairway path for a couple of thousand years now. And it's part of their day-to-day -day existence. Um, I've worked there a lot in the past uh, seven or eight years. Um, and it's just, a wonder to me um, how this is such a, a major part of the lives of the people of Ahmadiyya. 
um, and the rock reliefs were integrated into the medieval Islamic citadel. They weren't, they weren't um, destroyed, they weren't removed, they were just integrated into the medieval Islamic citadel. And to me, this was a really fascinating aspect. Yeah, I think that we could kind of try and weave together a few things that we're talking about. If we talk about the what Mikey was, I think, sketching out, like the politics of preservation and um, what does it mean to preserve something? So, for instance, if if the Ahmadiyya Citadel was being preserved in a Western sense, maybe that man would not be allowed to walk up and down the steps anymore. Maybe that relief would be uh, separated from, it, it's right out there. People can touch it, people can lean on it, people can you know, do whatever they want. So it, it's really striking to me. It makes me think of an example that I learned of recently where um, there's a shrine called the Kifl outside of Babylon, which I'm sure Zainab knows um, that it's a tomb of the prophet Ezekiel is in that shrine and madrasa um and the the outer area was recently restored and when they restored the minarets they found that there were bricks from the time of nebuchadnezzar that had been used to kind of patch up the minarets um and it i love that because i love the palimpsest nature of the relationship with the place with babylon with you know this whole region being tied together but um, you know, would then that brick be removed and then placed in a museum? Would it, what are the different impulses behind each of these relationships? Like, is there a way to preserve something while also allowing it to still be an organic part of its environment? Yes, I think those are such important questions, really. And I mean, working in, in on this project, mapping Mesopotamian monuments for, what is it now, seven or eight years already, um, one thing that struck me is uh, how everything is a kind of a, a, a living historical monument, that mm -hmm. one thing is kind of built into another, and um, you see that uh, that uh, relationship between different eras and time periods and the way that people live with it. They spend their daily lives interacting with it. Um, I think sometimes when sites become official heritage sites, we lose that because they, they're somehow sanitized. They're roped off. They, they serve the heritage industry, which is really for tourism. Um, and they become museumified so that they're no longer parts of people's lives. And I always think that that's a great pity because there's something very beautiful about seeing them um, there as they have been uh, for thousands of years and, and that people in the community have um, known that they were there and uh, more or less lived with them as part of their environment. Um, so. There are sometimes, you know, decisions that are taken either for the sake of um, the protection of the monument in terms of turning it into a heritage site or, for, as I said, for the tourist industry. And I think the, the kind of rise of the heritage industry as something that's a, for a consumer, uh, for, for con uh, as a consumer item is, is a sort of a pity. Um, 
because it disassociates the, the so-called heritage from the people and it turns it into a commodity. And I'm not a big fan of that approach, although, of course, I participate in the world of tourism and I go to visit sites in many countries, so I enjoy it as everybody else does, but we should be aware that we sometimes do this. However, then development also sometimes destroys yeah. things, as we know, is in, in a place like Lebanon, where many of you are today, you're all very aware of that, that development can um, destroy heritage buildings, heritage architecture, um, pathways, uh, roadways, even natural environments. And, and that's always to me so heartbreaking. I mean, we know, for example, shall I mention um, the beautiful site of uh, Hassan Cave in uh, southeastern Turkey, which has recently been flooded um, by the creation of the a dam. It's on the Tigris River, so on the Tigris where it starts in Turkey. Um, so a dam was built and this amazing, beautiful site that we documented in 2015. What we're looking at now is um, the mosque, the old mosque, um, the Ulu Jami, the old mosque of Diyarbakar, which is one of the most beautiful mosques on earth. So for me, the two most beautiful mosques, or oh, this is a hard question uh, that I'm asking myself, but among my favorite mosques <laughs> are the great mosque of Damascus, which is a astonishingly beautiful, really like uh, drop dead gorgeous, as they say. Um, and the other one is the Ulu Jami of Diyarbakar, which is also really astoundingly beautiful. I mean, as an archeologist, of course, I love both of those mosques in the way that they integrate antiquity into the mosque and they show a continuity of culture. Um, through uh, the millennia that to me is so beautiful and uh, uh, that I appreciate so much. So very near to here is the site of Hassan Cave, which was um, flooded. And that was a, a, an amazing, amazing site. And it's a pity uh, to lose it. And I, it was, for example, an, a major site on the Silk Road um, and uh, was a place where silk came from places like Mosul and Iraq stopped in um, Hassan al Cave, and it, that was a place of exporting silk and textiles to Venice. So it was a ma major exporter of textiles to Europe. Um, and so for the entirety of the history of that region, of our region, um, is such a uh, sad thing that we've lost that historical place. So Sarah, I want to jump in um, and ask you our sort of quick Q&A um, and then move into the, the town hall section because we got a bunch of really good questions in the chat. I'm going to try to keep the answers relatively short. So our first question is, what are you reading or watching right now? Oh, so that's a, a funny question. What I'm reading right now is a book uh, by the American Vietnamese author Viet, Viet Tan Nguyen is his name. And the book is called The Sympathizer. It came out a couple of years ago and it won the Pulitzer Prize. I'm really interested in uh, this book because it's about Vietnamese expats and the kind of um, the legacy of the Vietnam War in the United States and, and what it's like to, to, be, uh, to live in exile and to be diasporic. And of course, for me, there are so many, it resonates so much 
with being an Iraqi, with the Iraq wars that came afterwards. Um, so um, I'm really interested in uh, what he's written. And I also think, I mean, again, this is not to, this is not a call to arms or anything, but for myself, I think it's, it's good to form allegiances with other people living. I mean, I know many of you are in, in the Middle East and this doesn't apply to you, but as, as an Iraqi who lives in the United States, it's for me very important to form allegiances with others who have had similar experiences who are not necessarily Middle Eastern. Yeah, the, the, the shared humanity is, uh, is always nice to, to, to bask in. Um, okay. Uh, who would you love to shadow for a day, past or present? I wish that could be possible. And of all the people who lived in history, we, of course, it would have to be somebody from the past because I wouldn't want to shadow anybody in the present. But um, in the past, I'd really love to shadow my own great-grandmother. Mm. I would love to shadow my own great-grandmother. I knew her when I was a small child, I remember her well, but of course I was too young to ask her the right questions. And I wish I had had the presence of mind or um, the time to have asked her all of these questions about what it was like for her to experience that life. She lived during the last um, decades of the Ottoman Empire. She saw the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. She saw the British invasion. Um, into Iraq. Um, I just wonder what it was like for her to be a young woman in those days. Great. Um, okay, next is, what do people most misunderstand about your work? I think we've been speaking about that. I think Sarah oh. and I kind of went over some of the That's main true. points um, with what people, what I feel people misunderstand about my work is, is I think the the larger the the larger um, goal or aim of my work. I mean, it's never been about compiling the positivist data about the past, but it's always been about um, really decolonizing the field of uh, Near Eastern archaeology and its practices. For sure. Great. And our last one is, whose work do you admire or are inspired by? Uh, well, two people come to mind. Uh, one is the archaeologist Selma Al-Radi, who I already mentioned. Um, she was an amazing archaeologist um, who passed away recently. She uh, is the person who uh, restored and conserved um, the Amriya Medrasa in Yemen. And she did it in an amazing way because rather than bringing expensive experts from uh, the West, she found the oldest Osta um, bricklayer in the neighborhood and she, out, she hired him to train the young men who were um, without work. And she basically revived um, the method of making bricks and, and building that was local um, and, and uh they preserved the medrasa and the mosque that way. And I, I just found that approach to be um, such a, a, a good way to go. And she was just a, a fascinating and brilliant woman and a fantastic archeologist. Um, on the ac academic side, I have to mention the late um, Edward Said, 
because like for so many people like me, um, people with my kind of background who became academics, he really, he opened the doorway. He, he opened a path that allowed us to question um, the received uh, knowledge and the narratives. He allowed us to, to kind of analyze discourse and to say, well, wait a minute, why is this written like um, in this way? Why is it written like that? So he's, he'll always remain one of my heroes. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so now we're going to turn it to the group. I think we have our first question from Cameron. We have five questions in line. If I can ask everyone to be quite quick with your questions, um, and uh, we'll try to get everybody in. Cameron, you want to ask your question? Thank you. Thank you, Professor Barani. This has been a wonderful chat and very inspiring. I have a question about how you began the talk in a very high-level way about talking about your work being important for a sense of place and belonging. And my question is how you separate that in the modern world from ethnographic nationalism and state structures, which are unavoidable. Um, how do you separate the politics of preservation uh, from, from your work? Well, I mean, I think that, that that's a, a good question because it's, it's not an easy thing to do. I mean, I think that the politics of preservation is always there and um, I struggle it against it myself almost on a daily basis. Um, and with this kind of um, eth ethno-nationalism that's on the rise in all sorts of places, um, I, I think that we can. I mean, I'm not that much of a pessimist. I have to believe that we can, that we can work towards uh, separating those things. And sometimes when I'm out in the field in a faraway location, um, I, those things just seem so distant. I mean, I think in the cities, we think about them a lot more. Uh, but there, I, I certainly believe, otherwise I wouldn't be able to continue with my work, that there will be a way of continuing to speak out against those directions and to try to show a next generation that there is another direction to take here. Great. Thanks, Cameron. Um, next up is Yasmin. Yes. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for your authenticity and for being so generous with your time this evening. I was wondering how your knowledge of the Babylonian way of life has shaped your everyday life now. And perhaps if you could share any teachings about how they live their lives that may enrich our lives today. What a wonderful question. And because I think most people think, well, it's just some, you know, scholarly academic thing and that we don't think about that. But I know that Sarah shares this craze with me. And the first place, all of you, in fact, participate, those of you who are Middle Eastern, you're participating in it already, I would say, because, for example, the way that we wear amulets, the way we say, you know, that this uh, eye bead is to protect you, or this color turquoise is keeps you safe, or you put it on your baby. Um, so these are things that come down to us um, from Babylonian antiquity, and that we do continue the interest in the stars and the cosmos and um, nature. So I think the thing that I take with me from the Babylonians is um, a kind of a reverence for nature, 
that in, in, a, in a kind of an almost a religious way, that this is the manifestation of the gods and, and that we should have a reverence for it. And I think that's a good thing to learn from them, especially in today's world. Okay, the next question uh, is Nadine, but she's under the weather, so I'm going to read it for her. Um, what are your thoughts on the current debates around restitution, and what are some methods towards the de decolonization of museums? Again, Yara has another question related that she'll yeah. add on to it. Really, that's a, such a great question. Um, my feeling about restitution is that things things ought to return. I mean, for me, the Elgin marbles so obviously and clearly should be returned to Athens. Um, and I, I just don't really see how an argument can be made against that. Um, so in, in many cases, I am for the, the restitution of things, especially things that were taken during moments of colonial violence. Uh, for example, they were literally uh, taken as war booty during combat, for example, uh, Benin, things from Benin. Um, in, in, in certain cases, there's really no question that they should be returned. And I've heard the argument that um, places in, in the so-called third world, they, they don't have museums that can care for them, that they don't you know, have institutions that can protect them. But I, I think that's nonsense. I think things should, should go back if they were these illicit ways, then they should go back, certainly. Great. Uh, Yada, you want to ask your question, which is a follow-up? Yes. So it's a follow-up. Hi. Um, thank you for your talk. Um, it's a question to both uh, Sarah and Zainab. Um, what do you think about, I went to the Met's uh, current exhibit, uh, Making of the Met, and there's this little plaque about uh, partage and partage. And yeah, do you think it's okay to just put that little thing and then it makes it okay and you can just continue business as usual. So that I just want to hear your thoughts, both of you on that. Well, I think that Sarah, as she works in the institution, um, ha has to um, perhaps have a different um, way of responding to this than I do. So I will say, um, Partage is, was a very problematic part of the history of archeology. span I'm not for partage. The reason that I'm saying is I'm not for partage is that there are actually museum directors today who are calling for a return to partage. And partage is a colonialist, imperialist attitude towards cultural heritage. The idea is that cultural heritage items are better off with Western or European people. Um, so I'm completely and totally against the idea of reviving partage. Um, I think museums need to own up to their past and even in the cases where they're not going to return objects, I think they at least need to be honest and upfront about their own histories because it's not going over our heads. We see, I mean, as you saw and noticed, we do see and notice, we, we are aware what's going on. So uh, the least we expect from museums is that, is that they're transparent about their own histories. And I would say, if, if I can add to that is, I'd say hiring folks like Zainab and Sarah 
to help shape uh, the work of those places helps a lot. Yes. Um, I'm going to, um, Sarah, do you want to go ahead? Yeah. Since I, I was part of the large committee that wrote that text panel, Yara. <laughs> I'm glad that you read it. I'm glad it made it onto the wall. <laughs> yeah, I read those. <laughs> and you're totally right. And I agree with you completely. Um, and I agree with what Zainab said. We've talked about, she and I have talked about this. Um, and it's it's a very frustrating bind to be in um, because it did feel important to at least address partage. But as you point out, you know, the little plaque, it's not enough. Um, it's to the side. <laughs> it's to the side, right, right. Um, it's very hard to think of how to make these changes. And I think we're often stuck between incremental change and large scale change. And like, I really don't know the answer, but I, I am reminded of France Fanon wrote that decolonization is never a, pra a process that happens with nobody noticing. Um, and so I think the Met would do well to be brave and realize that we're not going to be able to do this with nobody noticing. And then all of a sudden, poof, we're decolonized. You have to do it in public view. So you're right. For sure. Uh, before we keep on going, um, Zainab, do you have time for one more question? I will take it. Okay. Um, we'll take the last one. Uh, Jazia, do you want to ask your final question? Before yeah. you do, I'm just going to leave the slides up. Uh, please give us feedback as you wait. Um, before we jump off, I'll cut off my ending. So Jazia, go ahead. Hi, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Bahrani. This has been a really wonderful talk. I wanted to ask um, about something that we're going through in the contemporary moment in the US, which is this major reckoning with monuments from slavery and from our racist past and um, you know, even present. So as, a, as an archeologist, how would you say, how do we deal with um, monuments that we now identify as representations of hate? And what's our responsibility to the future um, to you know, either preserve or destroy or contextualize these kinds of monuments? Um, this is a, a really com complicated question, but in terms of the um, the monuments of hate that uh, have been coming down, whether they're they have to do uh, with slavery or um, colonialism, I I think that it's it's really good that they're coming down. Um, my own perspective is that they should be stored someplace for future study. Um, in some, you know, the, I mean, they need to be archived somehow so that future historians can can be aware that th th these, these are things that were put up in a celebratory way at a certain point, and it's something to be um, aware uh, and, yes, ashamed of that these things did happen and, and um, they should be kept. I mean, I remember working in Iraq in 2003, 2004, when all of the Saddam statues came down and I kept saying, you know, please don't melt them down, put them someplace because future historians will study them, not because they were beautiful works, but because they're um, works of oppression, right? Mm -hmm. And how representation is used for oppression. Um, and so it, we do need to be able to study those at a certain point, but we don't need to look at them in the middle of our city square. Is that I don't see at all. I really love the idea that these could maybe be archived in their defaced state. Um, like 
I love when the monuments get decapitated, get tagged with graffiti, get paint splashed on them. I think that that is part of how that history needs to be recorded. Not yeah. merely were quietly, you know, pulled off stage with nobody noticing. So again, you know, the, the process doesn't work if nobody notices it. And um, as Zainab has written on the defacement of ancient Mesopotamian monuments, and I, I think it's a very apt comparison because you need to you need to mark that resistance somehow on the monument. Yeah, they're they're not precious, right? They're they're not fragile things. They're supposed to tell the story of who we are. So if we just little heritage sites that are protected in a glass box, they don't tell that story anymore, and they 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 cease to be useful going forward. Um, Zainab, this was amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. This was a huge thrill, um, a real pleasure to have you on. And Sarah, thanks so much for helping make this happen. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope everybody enjoyed it. If you're interested in connecting with Zainab, uh, you can literally just search her name and you will find Mapping the Mapping Mesopotamia Monuments website. You'll find all of her books where you find books. Um, and if you're interested in connecting with us as Afikra, you can find us, our podcast, our YouTube page, our website. Um, and if you're interested in, in supporting this work, please consider becoming one of our Patreon supporters to help keep these events plentiful and open to everybody and help us build our online archives. Okay, everybody, thanks so much. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Bye have bye. a nice day, bye. night, evening, wherever you are. Bye, everyone. Bye, bye. bye everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We have new episodes coming every single week. Make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can find us at afikra.com for information about all upcoming events. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. See you next time and stay curious.